Welcome to the Making of the Islamic World. I'm Chris Grayton. If you're hearing this through the Ottoman History Podcast website, the Making of the Islamic World is a series of podcasts intended for the university classroom. With each episode, we provide a bibliography of readings associated with the topic, as well as other readings and activities great for group discussion or for simply exploring on your own. In our previous installment, we talked about the rise and fall of Islamic empires in West Africa and the unique experience of the modern world that this region brings to the global history of Islam. A big moment we discussed was the Saadi dynasty of Morocco's military campaign against Songhai on the other side of the Sahara. The decline of Songhai was one of many momentous falls and rises that occurred during the period between the 15th and 17th centuries. This episode is all about those big events and what they meant for the modern world. But you'll also hear a lot that harkens back to material we've covered throughout this series. This is going to be a long episode, so I encourage you to pause and take breaks in between the sections. And that's because this is our last installment of the Making of the Islamic World series. This 10-part series has featured 20 scholars and teachers who study the history of Islam. And this episode will be made up entirely of the team of repeat contributors I've been recording with over the course of fall 2020. You'll hear my UVA colleagues Joshua White and Fahad Bishara, as well as Zoe Griffith, Aslahan Gurbuzel, Neelam Koja, Jeannie Miller, and Mariam Patton. And we'll start things off with Muhammad Balan, who we heard from in episode 5 about the history of Al-Andalus. For centuries, Muslim rulers controlled most of modern-day Spain and Portugal. But by the 14th century, Muslim sovereignty in Iberia was confined to the Nasrid kingdom of Granada. And many of the Muslims and Jews who once lived in Iberia had already moved to North Africa and other points throughout the Mediterranean world. One of history's most celebrated Islamic scholars, Ibn Khaldun, was a product of that transformation. We can draw out a lot of other types of examples of individuals who represent what I call the Andalusi diaspora. Ibn Khaldun is a descendant of one of these families. His great-grandfather was an emigre from Seville to Tunis. Ibn Khaldun, who was born in modern-day Tunisia during the 14th century, wore many hats. He was a scholar, a jurist, a historian, a political thinker, and a traveler. He was an interesting man living in interesting times. Ibn Khaldun did live in momentous times. Absolutely. I mean, he was living through the transformations uh, that were inaugurated by the Mongol conquests several two generations prior to his birth. He was living through the consequences of the complete political collapse of Al-Andalus in the 13th century. I mean, there were still, you know, consequences of that in the 14th when he was born. And the most important event that he lived through by far was the Black Death. The pandemic, right? The global pandemic of the, of the, or at least in the case of Afro-Eurasia, it was global, of the 14th century, which wiped out nearly a third of humanity. I mean, a lot of his friends, his colleagues, his family were affected by this. This was a very tumultuous time. This was an extremely tumultuous time. Uh, he was also living in a time of extreme sort of political change. A lot of the older empires were collapsing. New political units were emerging in their stead. And he also had the chance, for better or for worse, to rub shoulders with some of the most interesting and colorful conquerors of the 14th century, including Tamerlane, Timur. He also met Pedro the Cruel, but he also served in no less than five royal courts. 
Ibn Khaldun also belonged to a class of statesmen and diplomats who served many courts during this transformative period in the Islamic world. So he represents what we can call the itinerant statesmen. They, they provide us the opportunity to think about the various developments, right, um, between uh, the various links, I should say, between the production of knowledge and the practice of politics and governance and power, right? This is really the st- what's at stake with looking at these people and investigating their lives and their works. It is not a distinctively Andalusi phenomenon. I want to make that very clear. We see this across the Islamic world between the 15th to 16th centuries. We see the rise of a new bureaucratic apparatus of people who are scholars as well as officials. Ibn Khaldun was a statesman in his day, but he's remembered for his voluminous writings. He writes an autobiography for us, his rihla, his tarif, at the end of, at the end of his life, where he describes his life. He preserves his letters for us, right? His letters that he sent to various statesmen. He talks about his political theories. He talks about his idea of governance and politics. And he maps that on to his life, to his education, to his intellectual network. So I do think his life in particular is is a fascinating example of this, of how education plays a fundamental role in social mobility in this period how it allows individuals to rise through the ranks of government and in office to exercise tremendous political influence. But more than political influence, I mean, this is, again, a very cliched kind of point at this point, uh, at this stage of, of, of the historical discipline. It's almost a great man of history kind of, kind of frame. It's not that per se that interests me. It's the impact that they have on history writing, on the production of history. This is not an innocent encyclopedic project. This is a a project that was very much inflected with his own concerns, his own life, his own motives. And we need to really understand him to understand what source base we have. How do we know what we know, right? It's through these texts. It's through through this knowledge that's produced. And knowledge production is an act. So that's why I'm interested in these scholar officials. I'm interested in looking at how their lives and how their works can provide us a window into the social, into the political, into the cultural landscapes of the time. Yeah, Ibn Khaldun has exercised an almost hegemonic uh, influence over the way we think about the Islamic West. Uh, And this has been very problematic over the years, like so much so that his perspective has been privileged over uh, that of many other historical sources. Uh, I mean, non-literary sources, right? Just on one last thing about Ibn Khaldun. His theories of Asabiya, for example, have actually been taken up as, I mean, as, as an analytical mode of thought by many historians in the 19th, 20th, and I would actually say yes, into the 21st century, where he's sort of taken out his word, so to speak. Instead of us dissecting this type of historical thought, we actually integrate it into our own thinking, which I do feel is, is kind of problematic. And Ibn Khaldun, for example, look at his writings on philosophy, for example, have been, or on alchemy, right? His critique of those disciplines were taken almost as truthful representations of thinking of the 14th century. But as again, as a lot of scholars have shown, this is, could not have been further from the truth. Ibn Khaldun was responding, was reacting to a particular type of intellectual discipline, but doesn't mean that his words are somehow more authoritative than almost anyone else writing about the same topics in that period. I think so far in the 21st century, a lot of scholars have really been talking about the Ibn Khaldun of historiography, 
of the 19th century and of the 20th, not the Ibn Khaldun of history of the 14th and the 15th. Muhammad Balan studies a figure known as Ibn al-Khatib, who was really no less of a polymath than Ibn Khaldun. In addition to his scholarly pursuits in being a physician, he produced sung poetry in the muwashah genre we heard about in episode 5. Ibn al-Khatib was a vizier in the court of the Emirate of Granada for much of his career. His last few years were spent as an exile in Morocco, where he was ultimately executed for heresy, likely as a result of political conflicts. Ibn al-Khatib is, is, a, is a more localized example of this, because he really just, he never goes further east than Tilmisan, Ibn al-Khatib, but he, his life in Granada is, is a fascinating example of this. And Ibn al-Khatib, being a physician, also interacted with the plague in very interesting ways. He wrote a very important medical treatise for us that engages with the plague. But this is the most interesting thing about that treatise, as far as I'm concerned, in addition to the sort of the medical side of it, which many scholars of science and medicine have, have looked at, it's how he promotes executive authority. He uses the plague as an opportunity to talk about lockdown measures, for example. He talks about the plague as an opportunity for the king, the sultan, to ensure that there is a quarantine that's instituted. He doesn't use the word quarantine, but the idea of ensuring that people aren't spreading the disease unwittingly. So here we have the statesman in action. I mean, a physician statesman, no less. He also writes about politics in the same way that uh, Plato in the Republic describes the polity, right, as a body, as a corporate body. So he uses those medical metaphors, which comes out of not only his interest in political science, I guess you can say, the writing about politics that the philosophical tradition brings, but more specifically, his role as a physician. When the physician is also a statesman, we get interesting Interesting phrases that are used to describe politics. Ibn al-Khatib left behind a massive body of work, serving as one of our best sources of knowledge about the history of Muslim Iberia. He writes a number of historical texts, including local histories. His Ihata fi Akbar Garnata is a biographical dictionary that also has a lot of useful historical information. Uh, and then he writes the Amal Alam, which is his sort of universal history of the Islamic world. Interestingly enough, separating the Islamic world into three distinct geographical entities, the Mashruq, the Maghrib, and Al-Andalus. So he separates Al-Andalus from the Maghrib, going back to what we said earlier. But he actually incorporates documents into his writing of history. He incorporates text, the actual full text of what he claims were manuscripts that he had access to. Because he was the archivist, right? He was the chancellor. He had access to inshat documents. So he actually does a lot of interesting work there for us. But as any historian knows, you've got to be very careful with the documents inserted into a uh, historiographical, literary historiographical corpus. But nonetheless, uh, he gives us a lot of interesting material to work with. And he also preserves for us his actual InShot collection, right? And his collection of poetry. So his corpus is far more varied. And it gives us a far, I think, more representative sense of these people. Ibn Khaldun, uh, while interesting, while important, I never want to undermine this um, for thinking about the Maghrib and Al-Andalus in the 14th century, uh, we have a lot of historiographical mythology to tear through before we can actually recapture why he's so important. We'll say a little more about the legacy of Ibn al-Khatib and Ibn Khaldun later on. But first, let's talk about the world they lived in. If Ibn Khaldun is known as one of the first authors to really think about history in analytical terms, Part of the reason why is that he was trying to make sense of his world. As we've already learned, Ibn Khaldun served five different courts throughout his lifetime. 
Born in Tunis, he later served the Marinids of Morocco, the Nusrids of Granada, the Sultan of Tlemcen in modern-day Algeria, and finally ended up in Mamluk Cairo. His introduction to history, known as the Muqaddimah, is one of his best-known works. Scholars have been especially interested in his understanding of the state and his theories about the rise and fall of civilizations. He viewed this political history in largely cyclical terms. The first major fall we'll discuss in this podcast is that of Ibn Khaldun's ancestral Al-Andalus. It was a slow fall, to be sure. While the political conquest of Iberia by Christian kingdoms was nearly complete by Ibn Khaldun's day, he would not live to see the end of Al-Andalus and might not have even imagined the completeness with which Islam would be removed from Iberia. So, as I mentioned, the modus operandi of many of these Christian polities had been once we conquer a Muslim polity, city, emirate, toleration was the norm, right? We offer them terms, right? They surrender. Uh, We turn the great mosque into a great church, but otherwise things are left like business as usual. They pay a tax to us, however, uh, in exchange for religious uh, liberty to some degree. They're an underclass of people, but there's no instituted policy of forced conversion. There is no intention There is no uh, decree that's put in place to forcibly convert a Muslim population in Spain to Christianity before 1501. This is really key. And I mean 1501, not 1492. I'm not misspeaking here. 1492 is, is far more important for Jewish history, however. In March of 1492, a so-called Alhambra decree was promulgated, which offered... Uh, the Jewish populations of Spain, the choice of conversion or exile. And that's where we actually need to talk about the importance of 1492. The forced conversion and expulsion of Jews from Iberia at the end of the 15th century created a new Sephardic diaspora throughout the Mediterranean, the descendants of which would be found in large numbers at the beginning of the 20th century within port cities of the Ottoman Empire, still practicing Judaism and speaking an Iberian language often known as Ladino. For Muslims in Iberia, the transition was more gradual, but the ultimate outcome was similar. 1492 is the year of the surrender of the Nasrid kingdom, the official date of surrender, 2nd of January, 1492, of Nasrid Granada to the forces, the unified forces of Spain now, Castile, led by Queen Isabella, and and, uh, Aragon, led by Fernando, Ferdinand. The Nasrids surrender on very generous terms. This is called the capitulations. Uh, Generosity, of course, is in the eye of the beholder here. The generous terms here implied here are, we will keep everything intact. You will have your religion, your liberties, your rights, your lands, in exchange for loyalty, in exchange for taxes. We will not alter anything about existing practice. Half of the phrases that appear in the capitulation agreements, and there's many, many sub-sort of terms that appear here, are, we will keep things as they were in the time of the Muslims. So continuity was really what was promised. Uh, Nonetheless, Once Granada falls, many of the elites flee. They go to North Africa. The royal family, Babdil, Abu Abdullah, Muhammad, the last Nasrid emir, he also leaves for North Africa. Uh, Some of the military elites, some of the religious elites, they leave. But actually, many of these elites actually start converting to Christianity. And they're integrated very slowly into the local administration, into into the nobility. Not a unique process by any means in, in the history of Eurasia in the early modern period. However, the process of the conversion of the vast majority of Granada's population is too slow for some. So by 1499, a lot of the terms, the generous terms that I had mentioned, were reversed. 
more aggressive measures were implemented, leading to a revolt among the population, the Muslim population of Granada in 1499 to 1500. It gets a little messy. A few high-ranking Castilian commanders are killed. War breaks out, like a local war breaks out. And essentially, Castile has to reconquer the kingdom of Granada because it's in flames. To secure their power, they institute measures of forced baptism, forced conversion. In 1501, the entire population of Granada is forced to convert to Christianity. And in 1502, this is then extended to all of the various populations of Castile, the kingdom of Castile, which for many of those populations, this was completely unintelligible, simply because they had surrendered under completely different terms, some of them centuries prior. Like the Muslim community of Avila, for example, had been residing under Castilian rule since the late 11th century. Their first language was Castilian, not Arabic. Old Castilian, in fact. So it's, it's a really interesting development because it's new. It's very new. The question of why this happened is, is still a, a big one. In 1526, uh, Charles V converts the population of Aragon to Christianity. As you can see, this is happening at different paces everywhere. So 1501, Granada, 1502, Castile, 1526, Aragon. Because these are all functioning as separate kingdoms. They're not functioning as part of a unified Spain yet. In episode 5, we talked about a group of people known as the Mudejars, a population of Muslims who remained in Iberia under Christian rule for centuries after the fall of different Muslim rulers. With forced conversion to Christianity, such people remained marked by a new term, Morisco, which indicated their status as having been formerly Muslim. So over the course of the 16th century, so between 1501, when the decrees of forced conversion are enacted, and 1614, when the Muslims and their descendants, the descendants of these people, the descendants of converted Muslims are all expelled, irrespective of the de degree of religious conformity or piety. Uh, this is called the Morisco period. So the big sort of theme there is to what degree can we integrate these people religiously and culturally and linguistically into the emerging state of Spain. That's just like a whole other can of worms. But it's increasingly being seen as the, as the final chapter of Andalus. We can't actually think about that history independent of all the developments that were happening in the 15th and the 14th centuries. So scholars, rightly so in my opinion, have begun to think of the developments of the late 14th century to the early 17th as constituting its own kind of set of developments. Because a lot of the cultural practices of the Moriscos, like the Molid, for example, the celebration of the birthday of Muhammad, of the Prophet, really began in the Nasrid period. It was really a big deal in the Nasrid period. So they're basically like something that would be seen as a purely religious practice. It was also a way of keeping alive a cultural practice associated with the last dynasty of Al-Andalus. That phrase, wala ghalib illallah, there is no conqueror or victor except God, uh, which was the Nasrid royal slogan can be found emblazoned all across Morisco manuscripts. It not, does not only serve as a theological kind of motif, it also has political connotations. One last thing I should say about that is that these Moriscos are expelled to North Africa, right? They are expelled to Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, where they are sent to these places forcibly. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, who, many of whom were Christians. This is actually a key point here. They were culturally Andalusi in the sense that they are remnants of 15, late 15th century communities, Muslim communities, 
But many of them, I mean, they're third or fourth generation Christians. They were baptized, right? They have beliefs that are at best hybrid. So their reception in North Africa is mixed at best. But what they end up doing is they congregate within their cities. They establish kind of distinct cultural communities within their cities. Places like Rabat, for example, Shifshawan, Tetuan in Morocco were very distinctive Andalusi cities. And actually, they found more camaraderie among the expelled Jewish populations in some cases than they did among local Muslims, who also view them with suspicion, especially in a place like Algiers, because they were kind of favorites of the Ottomans. The Ottomans loved this idea of a Morisco community because it gave them an outside force to ally with, which the Ottomans did really well in other places as well, at the expense of local power. So yeah, the Morisco period is, is really important for thinking about the sort of the post-Andalusi phase of Andalusi history, so to speak, the post-Iberian phase of Andalusi history. And there are many communities today in North Africa who claim descent from these communities. So there's actually a kind of a cultural cachet of being Andalusi in some of these places. If you go to Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia today, you'll, you'll see that. Al-Andalus is still a time and place with considerable importance within the historical memory of the Islamic world and beyond. I recommend checking out our interview with Ana Cruz on the Ottoman History Podcast website, in which we explore the lyrical archive of Al-Andalus. There's still a lot more material coming, so especially if you're listening and taking notes for class, I encourage you to pause the audio, take a breather, and come back when you're ready for more on the history of the Ottoman Empire. Okay, so let's move to another part of southern Europe where another historical fall was unfolding. The Byzantine Empire survived the fall of the Western Roman Empire for centuries, and the Byzantine emperors had seen many mighty rivals in the former Roman Empire go down. We had the Sasanian Empire, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the Seljuks, and so forth. But by the middle of the 14th century, the Byzantines only controlled a fragmentary territory in the Balkans smaller than modern-day Greece. After a period of rebuilding during the 13th century, territorial losses and the Black Death of the 14th century had reduced the once massive capital of Constantinople to the population of a modest Mediterranean port. Meanwhile, the Ottoman dynasty was transforming from the heads of a small principality to rulers of a multi-ethnic empire in Anatolia and the Balkans. Here's Josh White, a scholar we've spoken to throughout this series, who teaches a course on the rise of the Ottoman Empire at UVA called Nomads to Sultans. The early Ottoman enterprise is one headed by nomadic Turkic people, but which from very early on enrolls basically everybody that they encounter, anybody who wants a piece of the wealth from raiding that the Ottomans are spearheading, can join. They don't necessarily need to convert. Plenty of the the early military leaders who associate themselves with the Ottomans. And really, you can think more about association than actual direct control in terms of Ottoman expansion. The frequent way to talk about this has been sort of death by a thousand cuts. So raiders on the frontiers, Akinjas, who include Greek Christians and Muslims, expand out well beyond any sort of centralized control. And only after a time are those that the Ottomans encounter reduced to vassalage, and then even after a bit more time, gradually, 
absorbed into the growing Ottoman state. And during that period of vassalage, just as with you know the polities we've discussed before, uh, those vassals provide military power. They provide hostages who are educated in the Ottoman court, whether we're talking about Borsa or Dirne or later Istanbul, and ultimately will help supply some of the cadres who will rule the Ottoman Emirate and then later the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman dynasty was not dissimilar to a lot of the others we've talked about in this series, but they did bring some innovations even early on. One was the devshirme, a practice of levying boys into a system of military slavery that effectively ran the state and army. So, I mean, there, there are two kind of major institutions that are often trumpeted about, but at least that are, that are invoked as central in Ottoman success, and they both date from the late 14th century. Uh, one are the famous Janissaries, or the new troops, uh, who are slave soldiers, um, though in a very different mold from those that we've discussed in the past. And I mean, one, one important respect, of course, that they're infantry, but more important is how they're recruited. Whereas in the past, we've talked about either Turks from the steppes being uh, enslaved and transported and then trained in barracks, or uh, others filling that same role, like when we talked about the Mamluks first, it's Kipchak Turks and it's Circassians. For the Ottomans, they still turn to the tried and true method of, of using slave soldiers, but they do it through a levy uh, known as the devshirme, or the gathering and the collection, on their own territories. It begins in the late 14th century first with enrolling uh, prisoners of war, captives, young teenagers, and what have you taken uh, in battle or non-combatants sometimes too, those captured by pirates and corsairs, what have you, who were trained into sort of the sultan's bodyguard. So that's just where we get the janissaries. In time, the Dev Sherme, though, in its kind of mature form, ends up supplying the entire administration with its key figures. Then there is really no separation between governance and military organization. These are directly connected to one another. The administrative roles as a governor of a district or a province uh, correspond directly to battlefield organization. And so in time, through the Dev Sherme, we have predominantly Christians being levied from towns and villages in predominantly Christian areas, but not exclusively, in both the Balkans and Anatolia, who are then being sorted based on their perceived intellectual and martial qualities, with some deemed perhaps most promising being taken to the palace schools to be educated and trained uh, for both military and administrative service. And uh, the Devshirme in this way will supply the Ottoman Empire with its viziers and with its provincial governors and district governors and what have you, through something that is often referred to as a meritocracy. And all others would be sent to be apprenticed to Turkish families. They would uh, work in kind of agricultural labor while they're young, learn the rudiments of Islam, uh, learn how to speak Turkish, and then once they grew older, be taken to barracks and trained. And in this way, the Ottoman Empire supplied itself with loyal, highly educated, well-trained military and administrative manpower, but folks who still knew the lands that they came from. So it gave the Ottomans an edge in incorporating and ruling the, the territories that, that they conquered um, and made people in those areas, in some respects, invested in that in that process. I mean, the Dev Sherme could be an extremely violent and uh, disruptive and painful 
experience for both those taken and for their families, but it also promised for some at least upward mobility um, and integration into the bigger Ottoman project. By the beginning of the 15th century, the Ottomans had not only built an army powerful enough to conquer the Byzantine Empire, but also a state resilient enough to absorb the shock of military setbacks. I think for us to understand how we get to the point where the Ottomans are you know, encircling Constantinople and playing this, this pivotal role, one that in, in particular you know, captures the imaginations of, of much of Christian Europe as you know, the end of the empire, right? The Ottomans don't see it that way. The moment, though, that we need to kind of talk about is 1402. Why do we need to talk about 1402? That's the Battle of Ankara, right, where Timur, whom we've just met, whom we've previously met, uh, defeated Sultan Bayezid and captured a bunch of his sons. Why do I want to take us back to 1402? Because Bayezid himself had laid siege to Constantinople, right? The Ottomans try more than once to conquer Constantinople. Bayezid laid the foundations for what Mehmed II 50 years later would accomplish, um, built one of the fortresses on the sides of the Bosphorus that would allow the Ottomans to choke off trade and support to the city from the Black Sea. But his defeat at the Battle of Ankara in 1402, and I mean, it was really quite crushing defeat, ought to have spelled the end for the Ottoman enterprise. It would have for any number of other polities. And so it's kind of worth thinking for a moment about why it didn't. You know, having defeated and captured the Sultan, having captured his sons, and then releasing them slowly. How is it that this didn't hark in the end? And it's worth thinking, too, about the battle itself, that Bayezid had diverged from the sort of Ottoman tradition of gradually absorbing conquered territories after a period often extended of vassalage, um, such that uh, their expansion might seen, be seen as a rather more legitimate process. He had conquered many of the other remaining and large and still quite powerful beyliks in Anatolia, uh, which had led to significant resentment. When the battle itself was taking place, those elements of the Ottoman army from the other beyliks turned against the Ottomans, leaving the sultan exposed. Who was still there fighting by his side? The Janissaries. Right. The products of the Dev Shermay prove their loyalty only decades after this institution even comes into, into being. And the Ottomans themselves, having through the process of conquest and expansion, right after that the period of raids, after the period of vassalage, the next step would be the Ottomans really kind of getting to know you, sending assessors into towns, villages, into the countryside, and determining what the tax liabilities of these different places should be, how many people live here, what is their faith, how many beehives are there, how many cattle are there, how many okas of oats will they grow, whatever. Um, and then using that as a basis to determine not just how much tax they owe, but also how many boys might be recruited into the system. They too would in time absorb the kind of local aristocracy, sometimes move them around. And for those states that were still vassals of theirs, they might la you know, leave them in control, but exert growing amounts of influence in who was in fact in charge. We see this in Serbia, for example, um, and the, the petty aristocracy of Bulgaria. So when 1402 happens and the Ottomans' more distant enemies, or those who will soon become their enemies, especially the Venetians, look for the moment when maybe we could, uh, certainly the Byzantines, look for this moment that, 
hey, they're disorganized, they're defeated. This is the moment for everybody, the Hungarians, the Serbs, the Venetians, to all unite and deliver the death blow to the Ottomans. They can't do it. They can't do it. They almost immediately each individually sue for peace with one of the contenders. And it shows the extent to which, in the span of just a few decades, the Ottomans become so involved in the politics of the Balkans that none of the other dynasties then operating can really break free completely. It's just not possible, even in this moment of incredible Ottoman weakness. And this is why, just within a few decades, the Ottomans are able to rebuild everything that they had lost in 1402. This moment that should have been the end of the Ottoman Empire. It could have been smothered in its cradle by Timur and his allies. Instead comes back much stronger and we find ourselves 50 years later surrounding Constantinople with an 18-year-old sultan at the head of a massive army, which includes, yes, his janissaries um, and you know, other, other uh, military units supplied by the Dershirme, and vassals like the Serbs, like the Vlachs, and a whole bunch of others. And this ends up being very much a multi-ethnic, multi-religious enterprise to snuff out Byzantine rule, but not to put an end to the Roman Empire, of course. Mehmed II will very happily claim the title of Caesar for himself very much sees himself as continuing, not ending, the uh, Roman Empire. It's worth mentioning here, too, that plenty of other folks had attempted and sometimes succeeded in invading from outside with the idea that they would become the Roman Emperor. Uh, so whereas it's often seen as this decisive break, and it is in many respects, certainly the Ottomans transform Constantinople from a decaying um, and much reduced city to a vast metropolis befitting, you know, an empire with world-dominating pretensions. But there's a lot of continuity there, too. The fall of Constantinople was a singular turning point in the history of the Islamic world for obvious reasons, but it also represented a turning point in another sense. In their siege of Constantinople, the Ottoman army, which had generally been in the mold of the other armies in the Islamic world over past centuries, employing mounted archers with composite recurved bows, began to adopt and produce its own cannons, guns, and gunpowder. I mean, from the beginning of Ottoman history, from its earliest moments, we see a willingness to adopt any innovation that might prove useful. We're already in witnessing an enterprise that enrolls anybody who wishes to join, uh, just not discriminate on the basis of race, religion, or ethnicity. Um, at least not, not in the sense that some of their neighbors might. And that will extend to the not entirely new, but certainly expanding innovation of gunpowder weapons. And so the Ottomans are certainly the first in that part of the world to enthusiastically adopt gunpowder weapons, having recognized their potential to reshape the battlefield. The Janissaries, the crack troops of the empire supplied by the Def Shermain, this kind of reincarnation of the Islamic tradition of slave soldiery that goes back to the Abbasids, this time is reincarnated not with mounted archers. And it's not because the Ottomans don't recognize the, the use of archery. The, the, the Ottomans will maintain probably the best archers in the field well into the 16th century, really through the end of the 16th century. Archers will still be an important part of this, but the Ottomans recognize very quickly 
that infantry armed with gunpowder weapons can reshape the battlefield. If you consider the Ottoman experience in early sieges, the Ottomans' first conquests of cities, like Bursa, they are slow, drawn-out, brutal affairs of starving a city into submission. Right? The early Ottomans, uh, who are you know, nomads and horses, have no capacity themselves to breach walls in the beginning. They, of course, rapidly adopt whatever technologies and tactics that they encounter which might prove useful. When the Ottomans first encounter Hungarian forces, for example, in the 15th century, they see the Hungarians have this tactic of lining up the, the wagons in which they transport the, their war material into uh, basically a you know, barricade, a sort of a little fortress of wagons, and then using the wagons as cover to fire behind. And within a very short period of time, the Ottomans are doing exactly the same thing. So the conquest of Constantinople is certainly the moment when we see the value of the Ottoman investment in artillery pay off for the first time. The Theodosian walls were no joke. They are enormous. And any visitor to Istanbul today can see them, right? They are huge. Nobody had been able to breach them. With the exception of the Fourth Crusade in 1204, the Byzantines had a perfect record of defending their city. Despite a whole bunch of really terrifying and very large and determined armies that had washed up below their walls. And that very much included the Ottomans, who had tried before and failed. And it's really worth considering just how daring it was for Mehmed II to go forward with his plan when he had his own military advisors cautioning him that this venture was likely to fail. His own father had tried and failed and would have probably advised peace, did advise peace, with the Byzantines. Mehmed II himself, upon his second accession to the throne in 1451, immediately reassured the Byzantines that, that peace would be maintained. That was, of course, a ruse, but it's the investment in artillery that changes the name of the game, allows uh, the Ottomans to blast a giant hole in the walls. It also, of course, has, as later armies will certainly used to their advantage, in tre tremendous psychological impact. The Ottomans early on invested in not just guns, but enormous, earth-shattering guns. Guns that could only be fired a couple times a day, which had far more of a psychological impact than they did a military one. Uh, but to folks who had never seen, let alone heard, anything like what the Ottomans were bringing to bear, certainly 1453 marked a transformation in how sieges and the conquest of cities would be carried out from then on out. The defeat of the Byzantines, which enriched the Ottoman state and brought large numbers of Balkan Christians into the Devshirme system, was only the beginning. The Ottoman army soon looked eastward, incorporating regions of Anatolia once controlled by other Turkic Beyliks. Then, in the early 16th century under the Sultan Selim I, the Ottomans embarked on the conquest of the still formidable Mamluk Empire, the impacts of the Ottoman incorporation of the Mamluk realms would prove immense. Throughout our series, we've talked to CUNY Baruch College professor Zoe Griffith. In episode 4 on the Fatimid world, episode 6 on the Crusades, episode 7 on the Mongol legacy, and episode 8 on the Mamluk Sultanate in Cairo. 
Here she is explaining how conquering Egypt and the Mamluks utterly transformed the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman conquests of Egypt from the Mamluks in 1516-1517 really should be seen as one of the most consequential and transformative moments in the the first centuries of Ottoman rule, particularly in you know in the in the course of Ottoman expansion and conquest, and the period when the empire is really establishing itself as a world power, perhaps after the conquest of Constantinople, I believe that um, the conquest of Egypt is probably the biggest turning point in early Ottoman history. The Ottomans virtually overnight expand the empire to include some of the wealthiest and most strategically uh, vital points in the Eastern Mediterranean economy. And in particular, with Egypt, they gain the fulcrum of an entire world economic system that uh, transported goods from the Indian Ocean through the Red Sea and through Egypt into the Mediterranean. But beyond that, you know, Egypt was an extremely sort of sophisticated state in its own right already in the early 16th century. Um, The Mamluks had a sophisticated bureaucracy. They had a very detailed system of uh, land tenure and revenue collection, the Ikhta system, which actually mirrors in many ways um, the Ottoman Timar, Timar system, which was implemented in, the, in uh, the Balkan provinces in which land revenues were granted to military officers. So the Mamluks, you know, they had performed cadastral surveys. They assessed the amount of cultivable land in Egypt based on its value and its, you know, irrigated quality to determine the value of Iqtaz. So the Ottomans inherit a tradition of detailed and intimate uh, knowledge about the land. And in fact, the Ottomans would never replicate that kind of centralization in Egypt. But what the Ottomans encountered, and actually what they had to contend with in their efforts to rule Egypt, was a a really um, well-established, deeply rooted, um, sophisticated state system. But alongside all of these kind of material, uh, commercial, and administrative institutions the Ottomans encountered in Egypt, uh, we really have to look at the incredible symbolic weight and importance of the Ottoman conquest of Egypt and greater Syria. You know, with the defeat of the Mamluks, uh, who had ruled from Cairo for 250 years at this point, the Ottomans added the Nile, Egypt, the eastern Mediterranean coast of uh, greater Syria, which includes today Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, um, as well as the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And this really transformed the identity of the Ottoman Empire permanently. For one thing, this is the first time that the Ottomans are ruling a significant population of Arabs and also some of the heartland regions of the early emergence and expansion of of Islam in the 7th century. So there was a lot of symbolic weight uh, that came along with those additions. 
it brought the Ottomans in a way much closer to being able to position themselves as uh, the champions of Sunni Islam, ruling over the three most holy cities in the Islamic faith, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is also the the holy city for Christians and for, for Jews. So coming into possession of these richly symbolic spaces elevates the Ottomans in the eyes of not only rival Muslim powers, you know, rival principalities in Eastern Europe, but even in Western Europe, there's an awareness that, you know, with the expansion of the Ottomans into some of the wealthiest and most kind of religiously powerful uh, territories in the Middle East, um, that the Ottomans have emerged fully as a world power, kind of striking fear into um, Western Europeans. The Ottomans have staked their claim um, to a very weighty tradition um, in Islamic history, and uh, these territories, kind of uh, Syria and Egypt, and eventually uh, Iraq and the Arabian Peninsula, um, are going to be some of the some of the longest lived territories that the Ottomans will rule uh, until the end of empire. The legacies of the Ottoman Empire for the Middle East and the broader Islamic world were many. On the Ottoman History Podcast website, we've got hundreds of interviews with scholars on a wide variety of subjects related to Ottoman history. So there's lots more to explore there. But here's Aslahan Gurbizel to talk about just a few of the important takeaways. What do we mean uh, when we talk about the Ottomans as an Islamic empire? We first of all talk about um, the self-identification, an important aspect of Ottoman identity, which was um, the, the Ottomans considered themselves as the defenders of Sunni Islamic orthodoxy. This identity was shaped uh, as a result of the Ottomans being sandwiched in between their uh, Shiite Safavid neighbors to the east and uh, Austria and Hungary to the west uh, as Catholic Christian empires um, and as a result of which the Ottomans developed um, a certain uh, ideology of legitimation uh, which emphasized the Sunni identity of the empire. And gradually this resulted in the production of a Sunni Islamic identity through the contribution of the Sultan and his court, but also through the contribution of uh, Orthodox scholars and the larger population. But when we talk about the Ottomans and their Sunni identity, we also need to remember that we are talking about an empire where um, a good portion of the population was made up of non-Muslim uh, populations. Uh, so what does this mean? Speaking in theoretical and legal terms, the way the Ottomans arranged their affairs with non-Muslim subjects was similar to what you have seen before in terms of the idea of protectorate. Um, the idea that the Muslim rulers uh, were extending uh, protection uh, to non-Muslim populations uh, by providing for their safety in exchange for a fixed tax. So this was a legal contractual uh, arrangement that you've seen in other episodes and the Ottomans reproduced 
uh, in their own legal system. Uh, but this is of course only the legal framework and the social reality is more complicated than the, the compartmentalized framework that the legal system pro pro provides. When we study the social aspects of Muslim-non-Muslim relations in the Ottoman Empire, we actually observe shared uh, social practices, shared cultural practices, and even shared legal institutions. So, in theory, every denominational group, every religious group had access to their own ecclesiastical courts. Um, so the Jewish populations could go to the rabbinic court, uh, the Christian populations could go to the church uh, as an arbiter of legal affairs, but in practice we do in fact see that many non-Muslims preferred to go to the Muslim court. In the Ottoman state, we see the legacies of many imperial traditions we've talked about over the course of our series. I think um, that thinking about the Ottoman Empire is interesting because the Ottomans did truly consider themselves heirs um, to some of the most powerful empires you've heard about through this course. The Abbasid heritage was very important to the Ottomans. The Mamluk heritage, which was much closer to home, was definitely an important aspect uh, of the formation of uh, Ottoman identity. On the other hand, the Timurid and Mongol identif uh, identifications remained very strong um, throughout the Ottoman period. In addition to that, um, the Persian traditions of statecraft were also, or literary production, were also important aspects of Ottoman intellectual and cultural legacy. But another important consideration is how flexible the Ottomans were in bringing together uh, the legacies of these different Islamic and pre-Islamic empires with the legacy of the Byzantine Empire to begin with, and how flexible they were in achieving uh, a sort of dialogue between these different traditions they inherited not only through books, but also through living persons. Uh, who started their lives as uh, so servants of the Mamluk state or servants of the Byzantine state and continued their lives as Ottomans. Um, so this flexibility of identities, which was particularly pronounced in the beginning of the empire, but continued to a certain extent to um, the, the late empire, was one of the most interesting aspects of the Ottoman empire, which makes it at first glance very familiar if you know your medieval history, but on the other hand very interesting because so many more elements were incorporated uh, throughout the early modern empire, you know, uh, through these uh, agents, some of which we have just mentioned, um, such as the emigres, uh, the, the translators, and um, many intellectuals who moved through these trans-regional networks on which the Ottoman Empire thrived. Okay, if you need another break, that's all about the Ottomans, well, almost all about the Ottomans, for now.
The Ottoman Empire was at the center of trans-regional networks linking Europe to Asia and the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean. And it was also one of the three so-called Islamic gunpowder empires that are often discussed in the history of the early modern Islamic world. Another such empire was controlled by the Safavids of Iran, the main rivals of the Ottoman dynasty during the 16th century, who had their origins in a Sufi movement. So during this course, we talked a few times about the role of Sufis as social and political actors, so not only as uh, religious and literary groups, uh, but also state makers and, um, and, main, main, and uh, playing uh, important roles in maintaining social order. Uh, the greatest example of this role is the Safavid Empire, because the Safavid Empire was established by the followers of a Sufi sheikh, uh, Sheikh Safi, and that's why the empire is called the Safavid Empire. Um, so the dynasty, the Safavid dynasty, were followers of a medieval Sufi sheikh, Sheikh Safi, um, and uh, they were a tribal grouping formed uh, and united around this Sheikh Safi. Uh, the interesting thing about uh, the Safavid Empire is that soon after the establishment uh, of the Safavid dynasty, Shah Ismail decides to convert to Shiism. So up until this time, the Iranian plateau is uh, by majority Sunni. And Shah Ismail decides not only to convert to Shiism for himself, but to convert this land uh, to a predominantly Shiite empire. Uh, this means that uh, the official religion of the Safavid Empire is announced as Shiism, which is followed by um, certain religious policies, including uh, the expulsion of Sunni groups from the Safavid Empire in the name of the establishment of a Shiite state. In this series, we've discussed how the Sunni-Shiite split, rather than being an enduring conflict, was only activated as a significant divide in certain periods of history. With regard to the countries of the modern Middle East, the deep origins of this divide lie in the early modern period with the Ottoman-Safavid rivalry, though even the magnitude of this conflict should not be overstated. This is a period in which, uh, as we can see from uh, the establishment of the Safavid Empire as a Shi'i state, there is a close relationship between political identity and religious identity. Um, and this is actually very much uh, encouraged by the rulers of the early modern world who portray themselves not only as sultans, as political powers, but also sacred kings. So Shah Ismail, for instance, claims to descend uh, from the seventh imam. Uh, so he also claims that imami... Shiite leadership charisma in addition to being an effective ruler. Uh, and because the political ideology uh, brings together the sacred and the political so closely, uh, religious belonging and political loyalty were considered to go hand in hand. So the Sunni populations were considered potentially to be more loyal to the Sunni Ottoman Empire than the uh, Safavid Shah. That's why they weren't welcome, uh, especially if they were vocal uh, about their Sunni belonging. 
Uh, and this goes both ways. So not only in the Safavid Empire, but also in the Ottoman Empire, after the conversion of Iran to Shiism, uh, religious and political identities come to be interwoven much more closely. In the Ottoman Empire, in fact, um, there are large groups and tribal nomadic groups who are more loyal to the Iranian Shah, whom they consider to be a sacred personality, than the Ottoman Sultan. One thing to remember here is that there is also a socioeconomic background to these uh, tribal nomadic groups who are more loyal to the Iranian Shah. They are known as the Kızılbaş, uh, which just means red head, and uh, red heads were the red gears, headgears of uh, the Shah's uh, army. Uh, so the Kızılbaş uh, populations of the Ottoman Empire were by majority from a tribal nomadic uh, group. And they were very much alienated by the bureaucratic uh, policies of the Ottoman Empire, especially the taxation policies of the Ottoman Empire, uh, which placed a pressure on nomadic populations to adjust um, their lifestyles to that of the settled agricultural um, uh, populations, uh, because that's when a bureaucratic state can more effectively tax the populations. Um, in other words, there is also a socioeconomic tension between the Ottoman center and large groups of Turkomans, which is what we call these Turkic nomadic populations, which is expressed in this religious language of uh, injustice in the Ottoman Empire and the imagination of a much more just Safavid Empire and a much more just ruler known as the Shah. Um, so this is followed by, in fact, the Safavid Empire uh, sending missionaries uh, for the cause of the Shah uh, to the Ottoman Empire, um, effectively organizing some of the most uh, threatening um, uh, threatening rebellions to the Ottoman rule, uh, such as in 1511, uh, the rebellion known as uh, Shah Kulu, which literally means the slave of the Shah. So this was a rebellion, uh, a, a large-scale rebellion, rebellion in which the uh, Turkoman populations of Anatolia came together in the name of the Shah. Um, and uh, as a response to these missionaries and rebellions, the Ottoman, Ottoman authorities began to effectively oppress all of their Kızılbaş subjects. Uh, so the emergence of the Shiite empire, as we can see, has shaped uh, the connection between religion and politics in the entire region uh, because the Sunni Ottoman Empire and the Shiite Safavid Empire expressed their identities uh, through uh, reference to these larger religious categories and uh, using these religious categories they defined uh, the insiders and the outsiders, the good subjects and the bad subjects. Um, uh, as a result, um, these changes in official religious politics uh, actually shaped uh, the social relations and uh, the intercommunal relations in the entire region. We had heard from Aslahan Gurbuzel in episode 3 of this series about Rumi's world, 
which explored the making of the Turco-Persianate culture that spread throughout much of our geography. Despite the rivalry, the Ottomans and Safavids to a large extent shared in the long tradition of Turco-Persianate culture and statecraft. So, of course, uh, the emergence of this Shiite-Sunni conflict uh, is one of the most important legacies of the early modern era uh, in the region. That said, we should remember that despite the religious and political conflict, there were extended periods of peace between these empires, and more importantly, there was a sustained cultural communication. So in this course, we also talked about the notion of a Persianate connectivity, right? We talked about an Islamic connectivity held together by madrasas and Islamic institutions, but we also talked about a Persianate cultural connectivity um, that brings together the empires of what we can now call the Balkans to Bengal region. Um, so despite religious rivalries, we can safely say these Persianate cultural and literary connectivity uh, continued in the same manner, if not more intensely, through this period of rivalry, because now the Ottomans and the Safavids were keeping an eye on their opponents and were trying to keep up with the culture production in the other court. Um, so this this meant that in, in, in arts... Um, visual arts, literary arts, there was sustained connection between these um, two Persian societies. Now, if we keep moving east in the Turco-Persian world, we find a state with its origins in Central Asia that ended up ruling much of the early modern Indian subcontinent, the Mughal Empire. For that, I spoke to Neelam Koja, in episode 3, she had touched on the earliest spread of Islam and Persianate culture into South Asia, exploring these connections over the centuries in episodes 4 and 7. The story of the Mughals starts with the rise of Babur, an heir to the Timurid legacy who founded the largest Islamic empire in the history of South Asia. Babur was the great-grandson of Timur. By the time he came into power at the age of 12 in Samarkand, there were a lot of claimants to power. If we were to look at the Timurid Empire, one of the um, distinguishing marks of it was the division of property and land to surviving sons. That is a distinguishing thing um, in the Central Asian case. So land was constantly being divided between the, um, the successors. What this meant was that you also had a lot of claimants to power and Babur then emerged in this context. And he was, he was born in the Fergana Valley, and because he, there were other claimants to power, he was basically exiled out. And then he eventually made his way to Kabul, and he stayed in Kabul for 20 years. Babur is also noteworthy for the autobiography he authored, a rare text called the Baburnama. One of the most important surviving texts that we have that really... Um, show the intimate details of his life and the places in which he inhabited is his own memoir called the Baburnama. The Baburnama was written in Chagatai Turkish by his own, this is his own story about his, his life. It is considered the first full or lengthiest autobiography in the Islamic tradition, which is quite remarkable. But there are remnants of 
the genre that you can find in earlier periods. So the idea of hagiography, of course, came before him. The idea of describing geography or travels, of course, came before, you know, the most important one that we can refer to, of course, is Ibn Battuta and his travels. So there are parts of the genre that predate the Babarnama, but the idea of the self-conscious self writing about his own life this is a unique marker, at least in this con- in, in the genre itself. And so therefore, it's given quite a bit of authority. The Babarnama itself has a very long history. So he, he wrote it in Chagatai Turkish, which was the spoken language among the Timurids. So again, Babur comes from the Timurid line. He's the great grandson of Timur. In 1589, the third Mughal emperor, Akbar, during his reign, one of his important scholars that he had at his court translated the Babarnama from Chagatai Turkish to Persian. And it was gifted to him in 1589, right after Akbar visited Babur's tomb in Kabul. There are also illustrated manuscripts of the Babarnama that illustrate some of the events that are described in the Babarnama itself. And those illustrations come from Akbar's time as well. Through the Baburnama, Babur had arguably birthed a new genre. And through his conquests, he also birthed a new dynasty. He is considered the founder of what we call the Mughal Empire. But they themselves called themselves the House of Gurkhan, which is the House of Timur. And Gurkhan means son-in-law. So when Timur was... Um, trying to vie for power, he married into the Genghis Khan line. So he was always considered the son-in-law of Genghis Khan, but wasn't necessarily of that blood. In his own lifetime, he never, he wasn't able to legitimize his power as such, but it was his successors who then just used the Timur line and then were able to legitimize their sovereignty based on Timur and completely left out Genghis Khan altogether. And there you have another um, you know, important faction, the Uzbeks, who did um, descend from Genghis Khan and who were the um, enemies and the competitors of Babur and also the reason why Babur had to move south. So he then eventually settles in Kabul, he fights these Uzbeks in Kandahar, annexes Kandahar for a brief period and and extracts enormous amounts of wealth from Kandahar. Because again, Kandahar was the most important entrepot between Iran and, and South Asia. And that was one of the ways in which Babur was able to continue on in his quest to establish himself as a legitimate emperor. Between the 13th and 16th centuries, much of India was ruled by different dynasties that controlled the Delhi Sultanate. Originally founded by Turkic slave generals, at the beginning of the 16th century, the Delhi Sultanate was controlled by the Afghan Lodi dynasty. The Mughal incorporation of the Delhi Sultanate during the 1520s was analogous to the Ottomans taking Cairo a decade prior. After 20 or so years in Kabul, Babur eventually makes his way south to south and east to um, the subcontinent. And there he confronts the Lodi emperor, who was an Afghan emperor, at the Battle of Panipat in 1526. And in that battle, Babur and his forces defeat the Afghan ruler. And therefore, 
can claim Delhi. And if you could claim Delhi, and at that time, the capital was actually Agra, he claimed Delhi and then moved on to Agra and secured Agra and therefore could call himself the emperor of Hindustan. Um, of course, when you think about the actual uh, ideas of sovereignty during this period, it's incredibly porous. And trans, uh, transferring power is not necessarily secure, right? And so we see this unfolds quite nicely with Humayun. So Babur doesn't stay very long in, in, in India. He dies in 1530. So he dies pretty soon after he captures it. The people that he's with want to go back to Kabul because, again, in Khorasan, the climate is much nicer. That's where you want to go and live. There's fresh water. It's cooler climate. It's not so hot. Whereas in you know North India, in the summers especially, it's incredibly hot. So for his followers, they were really vying to go back. But because there was so much wealth in South Asia, in the subcontinent, Babur, you know, convinced them to stay on. Some he allowed to go back, but mostly they stayed on. And then his his son continued on in trying to secure Hindustan. But one thing that we should note is that even though Babur insisted that they stay, his dying wish was to be buried in Kabul. He died in 1530 in Agra. He was buried for a bit. And then during Humayun's rule, he was exhumed and then reburied in Kabul. Babur's conquest would prove lasting, but the Mughal rise was not inevitable. Some of the contestants to power for Babur were the Afghans. So in 1526, he defeated the Lodi Empire, who were an Afghan group. And then his son Humayun had to contend with the rising star who was known as Sher Shah Sur, another Afghan who was able, who was very skilled at attracting good soldiers and training them. So for a period of about 15 years, Humayun is actually in exile and seeks refuge in Safavid realms. So it was very possible historically that that line would not have actually continued. It didn't have firm footing in Hindustan. Sher Shah Suri was a talented state builder, but his successors did not manage to build on his successes. In fact, their brief period of rule in some ways would lay the foundations for the Mughal state in India with the return of Babur's son Humayun. So he comes back and then he's able to go ahead and reclaim Hindustan. Now, the funny thing is, he comes back, he takes Hindustan, and then a year later dies in an accident. His son, though, Akbar, he's the new successor. And Akbar was um, blessed to have important viziers, important, um, really trained advisors that were able to govern on his behalf when he was young, but also train him. So train him not only in terms of how one should govern well, but also in terms of military strategy. And I think that was one of the most important things that could have happened for this dynasty. And so it's during Akbar's reign that you start to see the firm footing of the Mughal Empire across the subcontinent. He's able to conquer quite a bit. And then his descendants build on that. The peak of the empire comes during Aurangzeb's reign, um, and he dies in 1707. And from then, you start seeing a what people 
debate as either a decline or decentralization of power. For quite a bit of time, there is a, a time of expansion and more importantly of cultivation. And I think these are the remnants that we can think about today. So if you were to think about the city of Delhi, for example, and if you were to look at its architecture, the way in which it um, has like Humayun's tomb, for example, is one of the most important architectural feats. I don't even have to talk about the Taj Mahal because that is known to almost every human being as being one of the most important uh, wonders of the world. And that was built during Shah Jahan's reign for his wife, Mumtaz. What's important with, with the Mughals was not only the architectural feats, but building on what the Afghans were able to do with the constructions of the roads, the rehabilitation of the roads, of how to tax properly. And again, this was something that um, Sher Shah Sur started based on an earlier period, but refined and modernized, right? So the Mughals were able to benefit from that. And in fact, it is during Akbar's reign and, and Shah Jahan's reign and Jahangir's reign where they take a lot of interest in the Afghans to see how they governed and ruled, right? So a lot of the sources we have on the Afghans actually comes from this later period. So they were really able to benefit from work that came from before. The other thing that's important to know in terms of uh, in terms of cultivation was the role of the women, the Mughal women. They had a lot of power. They accumulated a lot of wealth. They were able to then distribute this wealth as well. So we know, for example, Mumtaz, for whom the Taj Mahal was built, she had enough. She had so much power that she even had a seal after her, which is an important thing to have in terms of a decree or a farman. So if you were to allocate funds, if you were to endow a Sufi shrine or a, a place of worship, you would need to have a royal seal to legitimate that transaction. And she had her own seal, which is an important fact that then her daughter inherited from her. And you had um, Gulbadan Begum, who was Humayun's sister wrote a biography of her brother, Humayun. So they were literate as well. They produced knowledge. So we have, it's not just the men, but also the women who were real contributors to cultivation of built environment, of literary texts, and of development. In India, the Mughals ruled over a majority non-Muslim, mostly Hindu population. And though Hindus had not been in the mix during the early formation of Islamic statecraft's approach to non-Muslim populations, in many ways, the Mughals replicated prior imperial precedents. One of the ways in which the Mughals accommodated the non-Muslim majority was through alliances and through land grants. Land grants were an important tool to uh, maintaining loyalty. It didn't guarantee loyalty but it helped to secure loyalty. And so there are a lot of alliances that are made between Rajputs and other, like the Marathas in the South, that allowed for them to continue to govern. Because it's not, it can't necessarily be inherited by the, the, the next child, it constantly allowed for negotiation. Right? So it wasn't that a land grant was given, like in, in England, if a land grant is given, then it's there for generations to come, right? It's their land, it's their family, and it's own. 
Here, it would be renegotiated upon the death of the person to whom the land grant was made. Generally speaking, if they were happy with you, you know, like if you weren't rebelling against them, then of course it would be renewed to the next successor. But it also allowed an opportunity to get an, uh, an allegiance once more, right? To pledge an allegiance once more. So that was a, a different um, factor there. The other thing that a lot of the Mughals ended up doing was contracting alliances through marriage. And Akbar was one of the first to do this. So he married a Hindu princess, for example. And that was another way of, of solidifying a network that allowed them to keep power. But all of this being said, there were contesting states that had to either be subdued or just left alone. The idea that there was a um, solidified, boundaried area of territory that was the Mughal Empire is quite false. It was incredibly porous. It was always negotiated, constantly being negotiated, and never really secure. So each emperor had to do, you know, they had to do their best to make sure that they had all of the alliances that they needed. Taxation is obviously the most important part of this, right? Like how does an empire make money? There's two ways. Either you conquer and you raid, you know, your whatever the conquest is and you take it, or you tax the land, right? Those are the two main ways of extracting wealth. The other is through trade, right? So if trade comes through, then you can, you know, charge money based on that as well. The Mughal Empire was gradually incorporated into the British Empire, and memory of the Mughal Empire in South Asia became hotly politicized during the period of decolonization. Perspectives on the Mughal legacy in the region are not unified. But one simple legacy of that period that can't really be denied is that South Asia is now home to some 600 million Muslims, roughly a third of the world's Muslim population. So far we've covered most of the Islamic world, but there's one more very important space that we need to return to, the Indian Ocean. Fahad Bashara teaches courses at UVA on the Indian Ocean world and the economic history of the Islamic world. He's been with us to discuss the economic transformations associated with the spread of Islam and Islamic empires in episodes 1, 2, 4, and 5 of this series. Our conversations often ranged as far east as China, which today is home to tens of millions of Muslims. During the 15th century, Muslim maritime knowledge became valuable to China's Ming dynasty as it looked to expand into the Indian Ocean world, sometimes described as a Muslim lake. A figure known to history as Zheng Ha, born in southwest China, is now known as one of the most important explorers of the 15th century. Zhang He was uh, actually born as uh, Ma He, and Ma, in the Chinese tradition, the, the word Ma denotes usually a, a Muslim Muslim origin. And Zhang He was from a, uh, a Muslim family in Yunnan uh, during the time of the Ming Dynasty in China. Uh, Zhang He was captured by the Ming armies and then castrated and was sent to serve uh, as uh, a servant in the household of uh, one of the princes who later became uh, one of the emperors of China. This uh, prince, uh, Kum Emperor of uh, China, was uh, interested 
in expanding into the Indian Ocean world for various reasons. Chinese connections to uh, the subcontinent, South Asia, were always sort of longstanding, but also there'd been a long tradition of of Muslim merchants, uh, especially from Iraq and the Persian Gulf, sailing to China and back. This is the sort of the legend of Sinbad and and things of that nature. Sinbad is supposedly from, from Basra. There are all sorts of Muslims uh, and Arabs and Indians and other uh, Indian Ocean actors who would go into trade in China. There was a Muslim community in China in Zeytun, which is uh, Guangzhou today. Um, and uh, they, uh, so the Chinese had had been familiar with this notion of the Indian Ocean trade, and was looking. They were looking to expand into the Indian Ocean, in part to sort of show off Chinese strength in the Indian Ocean world, in part to tap into this world of commerce, uh, in part to expand the tributary system that the Chinese had relied on for so long. So if we think of the relationship between China and the islands of Southeast Asia, the islands of Southeast Asia were in a tribute relationship to China, essentially would pay taxes uh, in return for various forms of protection from the Chinese. Uh, and the Chinese emperor was interested in expanding this, and so he tapped his longtime servant, uh, Maha, became Zhang He, uh, to lead this uh, Chinese fleet into the Western Indian Ocean, and they sailed all around. Uh, they sailed to uh, to Ceylon, uh, to what's today Sri Lanka. Uh, they sailed to the Horn of Africa. They sailed to the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, and it's, it's sort of one of the first moments of Chinese expansion, and in fact, one of the only moments of Chinese expansion into the Indian Ocean. And it's, of course, notable that they would send a, a Muslim uh, to to go and trade, it's a, a sort of a tacit recognition that the Western Indian Ocean, uh, at least during this time, sort of the fourteenth, fifteenth century, was very much a uh, a Muslim lake. At that by that point, Muslims had expanded into the Malabar coast of India, uh, had expanded into East Africa. Muslim traders were active all over the Indian Ocean world at this time. So it would make sense to if you were going to send some sort of a general. Uh, some sort of an admiral to these places that he would be uh, he would be Muslim that would be the uh, the the single sort of commonality between them and and it was a it was overall a successful trip for the at least from the perspective of the Chinese Zhang He goes to all of these places he's able to bring Chinese goods to all of these places principally porcelain but but uh, other goods as well spices. And he brought back all sorts of gifts from these rulers around the Indian Ocean. Uh, from the uh, the Horn of Africa, he brings a giraffe, uh, which uh, you know it was the this the rival of this giraffe in China was considered to be a very big deal. The the giraffe was seen as a so was somewhat like heavenly animal, and it sort of confirmed the place of the Chinese emperor as a sort of God's ruler on Earth. The early modern period has often been seen as a turning point for the Indian Ocean world, as European states and companies exercised increased influence over this interconnected space. But the rise of the Portuguese, Dutch, or British empires did not erase the connections that had been built over prior centuries. No serious historian of the Indian Ocean would consider any more that the Portuguese actually seriously disrupted trade in the Indian Ocean. Um, they they tried to reroute it in various ways, 
Um, they Portuguese established forts in in various parts of the Indian Ocean um, and east on the east coast of Africa. They established a fort in uh, in Mombasa, uh, and then there was one in Hormuz uh, in the Persian Gulf, and then the major Portuguese station was um, uh, in in Goa. Uh, in India, although the the sort of the earlier forts were were further south in what's today Cochin, from from those stations, the Portuguese what the Portuguese would try to do is essentially they acted as well. The, the first they tried to monopolize the uh, trade in pepper to Europe, and so they would try to carry as much pepper as they could in their own ships uh, back around the Cape of Good Hope and uh, up into uh, up into Europe, in part to circumvent the monopoly. Uh, that the, the Venetians had exercised on the pepper trade in the Eastern Mediterranean. And one Portuguese, I think he was a pharmacist uh, who was in India, uh, Tommy Perez um, wrote when he visited Gujarat, um, there, there's the, the Gulf of Cambay in Gujarat, which is a major, uh, a major sort of trading, uh, trading region uh, in India. And he said, uh, whoever whoever has control of Cambay has his hands on the throat of Venice. Uh, and so this is this is really in a sense what it's about, right? It's about uh, your Portuguese competition with the Europeans more than it is about Portuguese competition with Muslims. Although the Portuguese sort of mission in the Indian Ocean world, sort of spice and Christians, is what they came looking for. They engage in a, a series of campaigns against Muslims. Um, uh, Muslims respond with similar military campaigns, but for the most part, your day-to-day trader, what the day-to-day trader ended up doing was trying to circumvent all of these Portuguese ports anyways, and Portuguese attempts at controlling traffic in the Western Indian Ocean ultimately uh, ultimately failed for, for various reasons. Um, and uh, by the time, you know, by the, by the 1600s, uh, the Portuguese presence in the Indian Ocean was coming under a challenge more generally, and we see the emergence of lots of regional uh, powers, regional empires that are emerging at the time that essentially break apart the Portuguese empire and limit it to a couple of places in, in India. And so there, there are all sorts of dynamics of Muslim trade and uh, expansion that are taking place even in the time of the Portuguese. Rather than thinking of Muslims as doing trade and all, and expansion and all these things, and the Portuguese coming in and disrupting things or breaking all of that, and then another European empire coming in and breaking the Portuguese monopoly, followed by another European empire, followed by another European empire, we might read this history from another perspective and say that Muslims had been trading in this uh, in this area all the time, and these Europeans, well, they're just passing through. Islam in Southeast Asia today is proof of the Indian Ocean's long history as a Muslim lake. Almost half of people in Southeast Asia are adherents of Islam today, including the majority of Indonesians, more than 200 million people. Okay, now it's time to switch gears again and briefly return to the legacy of Al-Andalus. Ibn al-Khatib's legacy is more local. But he does have a reception among the Damascene population in Syria, right? Among the, both the Andalusis there, but also the Ottomans, interestingly enough. So Ibn al-Khatib has, was, has, was made famous, let's say, in the Mashraq, even though he was known there before, in the 17th century, 
when this very famous scholar, Abu al-Abbas Ahmad al-Maqarri, wrote the Nafh al-Tib, Fi Ghusn al-Andalus al-Ratib, Wa Akhbar Waziruha, Lisan al-Din ibn al-Khatib. So this is his monumental anthology of Al-Andalus. And the one figure from Andalusi history who was mentioned within it, in the title, is Ibn al-Khatib. And this becomes like the way that this person is received in the East. And he's remembered really as this great literateur, tragic uh, kind of philosopher, a, a physician figure who kind of falls afoul of political power. But Maqari memorializes him in this work, right? And it's, it's not a small work. It's 12 volumes. And it was dedicated to the local Ottoman uh, governor in Damascus. So there is, an, um, there is an Ottoman reception. There is a very distinguished Ottoman reception of Ibn al-Khatib here, just like there is one of Ibn Khaldun. But these two figures together, I just want to caution, have the potential to obscure the existence of other really valuable sources from the period from the 14th and the 15th centuries, including documentary evidence. We have a lot of documents, a lot of documents proper, I should say. We have a lot of other local figures who write histories who we need to really bring back into the story. I mean, this is a very important um, point that I think needs to be understood. And a lot of great work is being done there. A lot of wonderful work is being done there, especially among our colleagues in Europe. Uh, Spanish scholars have done wonders for helping us rethink uh, Andalusi history beyond the Khaldunian and the Khatibian frames of reference. We've already sketched out a brief political history of the early modern Islamic world, but I want to leave a few thoughts on intellectual developments, which is a thread we followed throughout this series. As we said at the outset of the episode, Ibn al-Khatib and Ibn Khaldun lived in momentous times that fundamentally shaped their works, which remain important to this day. It's worth noting that the modern revival of these figures goes back centuries to the early modern period, when Ottoman statesmen read, commented, and eventually translated these works. They only gained access to that work in the first place because of the conquest of the Mamluk Empire's territory in Egypt and Syria. For a long time, the intellectual history of the Islamic world during the early modern period was underappreciated. But its importance is immense. Without early modern learning, we probably wouldn't even have many of the important medieval texts that now circulate widely in print. This is especially true with regard to Arabic language scholarship. As Jeannie Miller explained, scholars are finally beginning to pay more attention to early modern Arabic manuscripts. So a lot of our perspective on Arabic literature produced in the Ottoman period comes from the 19th century and the early 20th century and the scholars that were active at that time. Both Nahdal figures, so this Arabic Renaissance, so-called, um, and also Orientalist figures. And what these two groups were in agreement on is a concept of decline, that the reason colonialism happened was because the Ottoman Empire went through a great period of cultural decline and not a lot of stuff was getting produced culturally, scientifically, economically, and so on and so forth. So they're very invested in that concept in the Middle East because that gave them a starting point to fix the problem. Um, and that's really what these Nahda scholars were committed to. However, there's a lot of problems with this so-called decline narrative. That's what we call it nowadays, is the decline narrative. One immediate problem it created is that nobody researched stuff that was written during the Ottoman period for, you know, many decades. Um, and so especially when it comes to Arabic literature, um, we just have a very small amount of research that's been done on this topic. 
In episode two of this series, Miller spoke to us about El Jahiz, one of the foremost literati of the Abbasid period. That period is usually regarded as a golden age of Arabic letters, but what's important to note is that many of the texts we have from the Abbasid period only survive because they were copied and preserved during the Ottoman period. You know that I study the Abbasid period, the early Abbasid period, but almost all of the manuscripts that I work with of the texts from the early Abbasid period were actually produced during the Ottoman period. So they were produced, and many of them, actually like a huge number of them, were owned, commented, carefully read um, by important Ottoman figures. So people who were famous and well-known um, administrators or in the government or in literary affairs in the Ottoman Empire. So this is actually really significant. And um, there's been also recently a lot of new research into early uh, Ottoman poetry that's in the Ottoman Turkish language. Um, and we know that um, a huge part of the literary cachet, I guess, of certain poets in the 16th and 17th century had to do with their expertise in Arabic language and literature. And so some of these really famous Ottoman language poets actually owned manuscripts by Jahiz and commented on them. And like, you know, um, wrote other works on Arabic lexicography that were very crucial in cementing their literary prestige in Ottoman elite circles, revolving partly around their production in Ottoman Turkish, but that in turn was dependent on their expertise with Arabic, uh, old, older Arabic literary production. So I think it's really a mistake to imagine that Arabic literary culture had to somehow decline because there was now a lot of energy getting put into Persian and Turkish literary production. These things often went hand in hand. And we have a huge number of codices, call them. So the books that are, we call them miscellanies. So they're like um, a lot of different texts, sometimes little different booklets even that are from different places that get stitched together, bound together that people were making as a kind of collection of stuff they wanted to memorize, things they found inspiring. Like this was a common practice um, in the Ottoman period. And we find that these are usually trilingual, right? So it's not that people abandoned Arabic literature in favor of these other languages. Instead, the developments that were happening were increasingly multilingual. There was a, a revolution, actually, in terms of um, manuscript collection, like libraries, and production. So this, this is something that I'm actually doing research into now, is the effect uh, that the scribes, Ottoman scribes, had on our impression of Al-Jahiz's works. Because um, this is like a case study that applies to almost all the Arabic literature that we have. Is In fact, it went through this management process of the Ottoman Empire, right? So Ottomans were very eager to collect the knowledge that was collected across the Islamic empire. They gathered these into libraries, sometimes locally, but often pulling some of the most important manuscripts to Istanbul. So for that reason, um, we often go to Istanbul to access manuscripts that tell us about earlier times in the Arabophone areas. When I say management of the text, right, I'm talking about copying the text, so if you have an old manuscript that maybe is falling apart, you better copy it, all that text onto a new 
uh, substrate, right? You don't, I mean, paper falls apart. You have to make sure that that text is preserved. So you make a new copy of it. While you're copying it, this was an active intellectual engagement that these copyists were often engaging in because we find in the Ottoman period much more sort of useful markings to help you get oriented within the text, whether it's like visually highlighting headings, punctuation, like different paragraphs, and, and so on like that. I mean, there's there's just the difference between looking at an earlier manuscript visually and an Ottoman manuscript is quite intense. Like they've really put a huge amount of energy into sort of um, making these texts more accessible by uh, highlighting their features. And according to my reading, they did a great job. So <laughs> it's not that they're just like ran doing this in a random way. I mean, people seem to be really reading and understanding these texts as they're copying them. Also marginal annotations, commentaries. The commentary tradition, of course, continues a mile a minute at this point. Like if you're, whether you're looking at religious disciplines like Quran, interpretation, you have commentaries on commentaries on commentaries getting written. Um, also in the rhetorical tradition, so we have like a whole massive discipline called balera, which doesn't exactly correspond to the concept of rhetoric, but it's um, sort of a science of how to understand uh, language beyond just what the words mean and how the grammar works. Balera was experiencing a huge fluorescence um, in the commentaries and commentaries on commentaries and commentaries on commentaries on commentaries <laughs> that were being written. And just because it's a commentary, don't forget, you know, there's a lot of original thinking that is going on. In fact, the commentary might just could have been written as a treatise, of course. Um, it's just the format that people were choosing to use so that it would get placed appropriately in the pedagogical curriculum. And there's this idea that the that not the scholarship on Abbasid literature was sort of sprang out of nothing. It was a renaissance, like it was just this new phenomenon in a dead cultural scene. But I think that is very far from true. Another area of scholarship that has long been neglected is the enduring intellectual links between Europe and the Islamic world. While the influence of Muslim scholars on European intellectual development during the medieval period is well attested, less attention has been paid to early modern exchanges. Early modern Europe, by which we mean sort of, you know, roughly from 1400 on up to sort of 1750s, the traditional sort of cutoff point, is in many ways just as, if not more, connected. Um, I think the connections beyond the specific scholarly element are even stronger, even more pronounced. And so perhaps that's why people don't, or scholars don't traditionally point to such a specific moment in early modern European history as they can with the medieval period, because it's not as concentrated. It's just more widespread and more um, diffused in a way. The important thing to understand about early modern European history, especially on the scholarly level, is that what we call the Renaissance is very much embedded in kind of renegotiating what that medieval scholarly outlook was. It wasn't a total overthrow, although some of its com 
some of its scholars, you know, some scholars at the time would have felt, would have argued that, that they were totally overthrowing the efforts of the scholastics, especially as it relates to like translating medieval commentators or pre-medieval commentators, especially the Arab commentators like Ibn Rushd and Ibn Sina. Yeah, there were, there were groups of, of humanists who were totally for, you know, no, we don't want the Arab sort of intermediary when you want to start from scratch, go back to the Greek. But there was also a fairly strong contingent of humanist scholars who said, no, 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 wait a minute. Like, we don't have these texts without the medieval commentators. So even if we find some of the Greek originals, uh, we don't have the Greek originals for others. And so we still need to understand the Arab commentators. There. We need to make better translations into Latin. And so you actually have even more translations of Ibn Sina during the Renaissance than you ever did during the medieval period. Uh, that's like one really clear example of how the medieval influence is actually even stronger in the Renaissance and more and more trinity more and more translations are produced of um, Ibn Sina's medical works in particular. That's where we can see the kind of continued relevance of the medieval translation period, translation movement, with a twist. Kind of, you know, okay, now the humanists are better philologists, they have better access to texts, and they are going at it with the same kind of impulses, but just better equipped. Miriam Patton has offered some details about the role of translation and interpretation of ancient texts, as well as the production of new forms of knowledge in the Islamic world. In episode two, we learned about the role of translation in the early Islamic empires, like the Umayyads and the Abbasids. In episode three, we explored how figures like Ibn Sina or Avicenna drew on the Greek tradition to develop new scholarly frameworks. And in episode six, we learned about how the Crusades became an unlikely site of access to Arabic texts for Europeans. And while these trends continued during the early modern period, the rise of the Ottomans also represented something new for Europe and its relationship with Islam. There were many, many more books printed in Europe about the Turks than there ever were about the New World. So even though the discovery of the New World seems to us such a sort of earth-shattering change. You know, your whole conception of the world is changing in, in the 16th century. And yet, there was still, you know, constant constant flow of books being printed about the Turks and their cultures and their habits and their norms, more than there ever were about, about the New World, because of this sustained interest, be it a mix of fear, but also sort of curiosity, um, that, that is sustained throughout, throughout the early modern period. Now you have a kind of tangible threat let's say. You know, with, when we spoke about the Crusades in an earlier episode, that was kind of contained to, you know, to the, to the Levant and, and greater Syria. Um, it's not the same with the Ottomans, who are uh, campaigning and, you know, are eventually taking Constantinople and providing a kind of credible threat to certain European polities. I won't say to Europe as a whole, because the whole idea of Europe being a kind of cohesive entity isn't even true. Like that's, it's not the correct way of thinking about Europe at the time. And it helps to explain why at different points in time, different polities are aligned with the Ottomans against other Europeans, uh, because they were just playing off their strengths, playing off their weaknesses. So, you know, at one point, uh, the Ottomans were encamped in Southern France in Marseille because they were wintering their troops there because they had an alliance with the French, uh, in opposition to the Italians, for example. The story of England is very interesting because they kind of get late into the game. Elizabeth needs help. She sees, oh, well, I can sort of hedge my bets if I align myself with the Ottomans and uh, against France. You know, these kinds of relationships are very complicated. And some scholars who argue that part of why the Protestant Reformation was able to succeed is partly because of 
Ottoman pressures on the East. And so uh, Catholic Europe having to choose, okay, are we going to focus our energies on dealing with this, this priest in Germany or are we going to focus our attentions on the very, very threatening military presence to our East? Um, so that's another that's another way of looking at the Ottoman relationship or the Ottoman influence on Europe as through a military lens, which explains kind of intellectual formations, if that makes sense. Not to mention all of the sort of efforts of sending diplomats to Constantinople, to Istanbul, to Curry Favier, the books that they brought, the gifts that they brought back with them. All of these are, are angles that you could use to, to understand this broader relationship. The emergence of the Ottomans as political challengers in Europe and the Mediterranean world did little to slow European interest in Islamic learning. You have printing presses in Italy, printing Qurans and Arabic books like Euclid and, and Ibn Sina from the early 16th century, 1514. That's incredibly early. Like the first Arabic printed books, the first Ottoman printed books were printed not in, in the Ottoman Empire, but, but in Europe. Um, and another cool example that I could have mentioned earlier in, the, in our discussion was um, this book called the Kitab al-Miraj, which is a book about uh, Muhammad's ascent into heaven. And some scholars argue uh, that this was a book that really influenced Dante and his conception of, of the Inferno, because this book was translated into Latin. And we know some of Dante's patrons and his colleagues were involved, or at least sort of traveled to Granada, to, to Spain, to Andalus, where, where this text we know existed. You have a second wave of interest in Arabic language and the Oriental scholarship explodes during this period. Um, people like to point, you know, sp focus on the sort of late enlightenment period, especially as it relates to how studying other religions, especially Islam, kind of helps, you know, further the enlightenment ideals of, oh, you know, maybe religion shouldn't be the end all be all of everything. Um, but those Oriental scholars were really their, their efforts really began much earlier in the 16th century. Their efforts to, to study Arabic um, were a mix of the kind of biblical angle of believing that Arabic helped you better understand Hebrew, and also this kind of continuation of the Renaissance theme that, okay, some of these secrets of the Platonic tradition that you know we want to revive because it's the Renaissance only exist in the Arabic, so we need to read Arabic so we can actually understand those, so we can finally understand what Plato is talking about and finally make Plato and Aristotle agree. Well, I think this means we've come full circle in our series, from the origins of Islamic polities to the remaking of the early modern Islamic world. We've covered so much ground, and yet I feel like we've only scratched the surface on so many of these topics. And that's why you can look forward to supplementary episodes in the future. We've already got some on the Ottoman History Podcast website for you to explore further. I want to thank all the scholars whose voices we've heard over the course of this series. They've been incredibly generous with their time over the course of an extremely chaotic semester. I also want to thank you, the listener, for being generous with your time as well. And finally, I want to give a shout out to my students at UVA, who've been participating in this experiment with me throughout the fall. Conditions notwithstanding, it has really been a wonderful semester and I have been very impressed with the quality of the work I've received. My heartfelt thanks to every one of you for being part of this. And on that note, I think it's time to say goodbye for now. Take care, everyone.